I don't want to preach a sermon before I preach a sermon, but I did love the fact that we sang the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus song. Um, because it's a downer, and it's not, right? It feels like a downer, but it's actually got great words, and it's a, it's a sustaining, good kind of song. And just this morning, uh, in the new membership class, we were talking about Christians grieving, and Christians, in a sense, don't know how to grieve, because everything is happy, clappy, K-love. I mean, everything's just like awesome. And things aren't all awesome. Uh, read the Psalms. Um, and so the psalmist, in a sense, teaches us how to deal with all our different emotions. Um, rejoicing, everything's awesome and wonderful circumstantially, to my soul cleaves to the dust, I'm so down and depressed. And so the, the, the bummer is sometimes we're short-sighted when it comes to church and, and, and pastors and leading us in musical worship uh, and, and coming alongside of those psalms and teaching us how to grieve and teaching us how to be depressed in a biblical kind of way. Uh, and so a song like that is awesome because it doesn't feel good, but it's steady and it relates to our emotions that are real emotions. And yet it's speaking truth amidst the darkness. There's my mini sermon for today. We don't want to be practical Christian scientists, okay, who say there's no such thing as suffering, there's no such thing as death. There is such a thing as suffering, and there is such a thing as death. Um, but Jesus has conquered them, so our hope is in him. But, okay, I'm preaching again. It's the pastor in me. Can't resist. It's a real world we live in. It's broken. We're broken. Jesus is not. And he's coming again to fix all the brokenness. Amen? Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Not to close the service. <laughs> Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the, the gift you've given us as far as music and encouragement that we find. Um, we're very thankful, even for the way you've made us in your wisdom. We're complex beings, uh, certainly not single-sided. And we struggle, and we ha we're happy, and we're not happy, and there's so many different things happening. Thank you that your love for us is steady and sure, and that we know that this is true because you've sent your Son into this world for us. Encourage us now as we look to your word, that we might think rightly, that we might worship differently, and that we might bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, and that we might find joy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Titus. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the third chapter of Titus. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. If you have a Bible, you can look at the table of contents. You can pull it up on your phone. Third chapter of this book called Titus. It's called Titus because Titus is a pastor in a pagan city called Crete in the Mediterranean in the first century. And the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, helping him know how to pastor a church in that kind of environment, and then helping the Christians... People like you and people like me know how to function. One thing's for sure in Titus, the gospel gets a big emphasis. And the church at Crete, who has believed the gospel, is now to be protecting the gospel and promoting the gospel. Okay, That's definitely an emphasis when you read the whole letter. So here are all these people who have become Christians. They've believed the gospel. They've believed the good news about Jesus. Not bad news, good news. The good news about Jesus, that he came into this world, that he did everything perfectly for those he would represent. 
And then he would voluntarily go to Calvary's cross to be treated as if he were the worst person ever. Not only that, by humans. Not only that, to go to the cross spiritually. He went there physically, but he's there for a spiritual reason ultimately, and that would be to voluntarily receive the judgment, the condemnation, the fair judgment from his father so that sins, rebellion, our rebellion, could be atoned for. So God wouldn't have to hold our rebellion against us anymore. This is good news. It's good news that not only did that happen, then, after he was crucified, that he died on the cross, he was raised from the dead. That the Father was pleased with this sacrifice that he offered, that he was victorious, that he's powerful, that all the things he said he was going to do, he did. He wasn't just a prophet. That it worked, if you will. Good news. And good news comes then to sinners like us, rebels like us. If we trust in his work, then God accepts us. Okay, this is, this is great news. It's awesome. To the point where when I first became a Christian, when I was a, a college student in Lincoln, Nebraska, I thought when I told people the good news and that I'd become a Christian, me of all people, they would be thrilled. I was so naive. I was so naive. I mean, I thought the people were generally good and they, they like good things and I'm going to tell them the good thing of the gospel and that I became a Christian. And, you know, I thought they were going to be like, awesome, how did that happen? Tell me. And you can snicker and think, boy, was he in for a rude awakening. Even the religious people that I thought would be super happy, they tended to be the least happy. One thing that Christians have struggled with and struggle with, we've struggled with it since there's been Christianity, is how we, who've believed the good news, relate to people who don't think the good news is good news. It's a struggle. It's a struggle in Crete, pagan culture. It's a struggle in Omaha, pagan culture. More and more pagan culture. And there's this difficulty. How, how, how do we do this? And then it gets worse because sometimes it's not just indifference to us. It's not just that they're not excited. It seems like they're excited to be against us. Right? And when you become a Christian, you're not, you don't become a Christian based upon your goodness. My goodness, no. <laughs> No, it's based upon the goodness of Jesus and the perfection of Jesus. And, and that's how we become Christians. But then when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God works in your life and you, you become more and more Christ-like and, and now you have new desires and, and now good works come as a result. Titus emphasizes that a lot. But then the unbelievers oftentimes don't think our good works are good works and they don't think what we think is good and they can even be hostile against us. 21st century America is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity and to Christians and to what we would consider good and the fruit of the gospel. So this is super relevant to us. Super relevant to us. And it's, it's a hard road to hoe. And in so many ways, I would like it to not be this way. I mean, we've had it pretty good. But what we're seeing is probably looking more and more like Crete or Corinth. 
first century pagan kind of culture. And so it's super relevant in that sense. So today what we'll do is we'll look at verses 1 to 8 in chapter 3, and we'll do it quickly because we looked at it last week. And so I'm not going to re-preach the sermon. But then what we're going to do, and that addresses this issue, by the way, how do we deal with these people who are against us? We'll review that ever so quickly. And then what we'll do is pick up where we left off last time, um, but we want to bring everybody else up to speed in case you weren't here. Then what we'll do is, is look at a handful of questions that come as a result. I think they're natural questions. They're questions that, that come uh, in light of our passage, in light of 21st century America, in light of being a Christian and people hostile against us. What about this? What about that? What about that? What about this? These are questions that you've asked me. These are questions that always get asked. They're questions that will help us be more balanced, I guess, in our big picture perspective, I hope. Okay? doesn't get any more relevant than this. Okay? So the structure of the passage, first two verses have a command. Then we have the rationale for the command. And then we have really a, a reiteration of it, if, if, if we can call it that. So let's go ahead and just work through the, the text quickly. Verses 1 to 8, Titus chapter 3. Remind, literally consistently, ongoingly remind them, remind Christians, Titus to Christians, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And that might come out of, you know, it might be a zinger, right? They're the ones who don't like Christ. They're the ones who don't like my Christian morality. They're the ones that are against us. Keep telling Christians you need to submit to governing authorities and you need to be respectful. So I'm here to keep telling you that. I think I said last week something along the lines of, think of somebody who really makes you mad, who you don't like. And then I said, no, oh, too late, you already sinned. <laughs> I mean, it's okay to disagree. He's not saying you can't disagree, but he's saying respect submission. Christians are supposed to be submissive people. Well, I, I need to hear that because I'm ready to, to, go, to, go, to go fight like crazy, maybe even in the name of Jesus. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. Seems to be broader now than just governing authorities, but that, that's, that's a big one. To avoid quarreling, to not be contentious, to be gentle or forbearing, and to show, as in let it be seen, it's so obvious that you really are doing these things, perfect courtesy or, or considerateness or meekness toward all people. Even those governing authorities, our context would have us to know. Not only the governing authorities, but even those guys. Good for us to hear. Because it's not my natural bent. You don't get any indication of, you do this once they're good and godly. They weren't good and godly. So we have to remember this, especially this time of year in America. We're to be gospel people, gospel promoters. That's what we do, first and foremost. That's our identity. That's what we're, we're all about. And then good works come as a result. And one of the good works is this. We submit. Then the rationale behind it, which is awesome. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish... 
right, regarding God and His ways, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred, uh, hated by others and hating one another. What's he saying? He's saying, you used to be like them. Those things that make you so mad about, I'm not going to say her name or his name. You used to be like that. It's good for us to remember that because then we remember how the gospel actually works. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Notice it's all Him. He does this. Not because we're good, we're actually bad. He does this. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, out of context. I love, 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 love that passage. You know, it's just like, just this gallon jug of awesome gospel wonderfulness. And you just chug the whole thing down. It's like, yeah! Refreshment. Salvation is of the Lord. It's all Him. This is wonderful. But we do need to keep it in our context, right? And the context is, it's so awesome and wonderful to you. And it came to you when you were just like that politician you hate, who's opposed to Christianity and its morality and values. And if you don't think you were just like them, you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, right? In light of what this says about anthropology, a, human, uh, uh, a Christian perspective of human beings, Ephesians 2 would be similar. So this is just a super reminder to us. I'm so fired up, jazzed, excited about all the doctrines of salvation and how it works. But you know, at the end of the day, it shows up in practice. <laughs> then he reiterates things. Verse, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. I mean, I mean, everybody knows this gospel stuff if they're a Christian. And I want you to insist. So, Pastor Titus, I want you to insist on these things. I want you to stress these things. I want you to, 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 to push here so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, these things regarding God and how He saves sinners, it seems, and the fruit that comes as a result are excellent and profitable for people. So, so far, I have given you an excellent sermon and a profitable sermon by saying you need to be submissive, you need to be respectful. Even when there are adults behaving badly from a Christian worldview. Interesting, huh? I have a list of five questions that come as a result. Really, this was the conclusion to last week. But I know you wanted to go to McDonald's, so we called it short. 
Question number one. Is this a call to moral relativism? In other words, are, are we saying that what such and such a person who's lobbying for such and such a position, are we, are we saying Christians have to say they're right? No. Absolutely not. It's kind of a dumb question because you all know the answer is no. Right? But at least let's state the obvious. In Titus, he's telling us what's right and wrong. Right? The Bible's filled with what's right and wrong. Objectively right and wrong. Okay? There's this thing called God's law. And it defines right and wrong. And it's not only for the Jews. Read Romans chapter 2. The law of God is written on the heart of the Gentile. Okay? It's God's law. What's right and wrong? Jesus summarizes the whole thing. And it wasn't just for the Jews. First and foremost, love God. Which has all kinds of implications, right? Because he, he explains how we're supposed to love Him. And love your neighbor. And He explains how we're supposed to do that. So we're, we're not being relativistic at all. In fact, if you become a Christian, this, you see this stuff all the more clearly. This is right, this is wrong. And you can hear a leader say something and you can say, that's totally wrong. That dishonors God, Right? I hope you do. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't preach that. Exactly how you're going to do this, I don't know. I think you should pray about it. <laughs> how can I say that's wrong and that's right? And, what, and even to say what somebody says is wrong and to try to do so submissively and respectfully. Because that's what I'm trying to do. Not claiming victory. Hope that's what you're trying to do. And by the way, the church is supposed to preach the gospel. That's what we do. Good news about Jesus. That Jesus does what? Saves from sin. You don't have sin if you don't have law. First John says, sin is lawlessness. So I actually have to tell people they're wrong. Or they'll never, ever understand their need for Jesus. So just make sure that we don't just read Titus in isolation from everything else and turn our brains off and draw wrong conclusions. Titus talks about sin. So I want to tell people that, you, I mean, you can, go down the, you can go down the list. But you do have to have, if you're going to have gospel, you have to have law, Right? You get to a gospel, you know, unvarnished in its awesome, majestic glory in Romans 3. But you have Romans 1, and you have Romans 2, and let's call it 3a, before you have gospel. So I'm fully encouraging you to say, if something is sin, that's sin. But don't stop there, because then we're just trying to promote some kind of morality. And actually, the church is called to preach the gospel. Sometimes we forget to get to the good news. But let's also remember to get to the good news, we have to have bad news. That's how Romans works. So if it's idolatry, I need to say that's idolatry. By the way, even with people who have good Christian moral values like I do, 
I'm going to say, that's idolatry. They deny the triune nature of God and that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's idolatry. I don't care if their ethics are the same as mine because they actually aren't. I'm off on a tangent now. but We'll get to a text in a second, I promise. We're not saying, I'm not saying, I know the Apostle Paul's not saying you can't preach law. We gotta preach law. He does. Does that make sense? Simple? It's not so simple, right? Some ways it's simple, some ways it's complex. How can I be respectful? And as respectful as I can be, but I also want to tell them the gospel because that's my, my reason to be, and I can't explain the gospel if I can't explain sin. I gotta explain sin. Well, this would be fun if we had like a fireside chat afterward because think of all the things we could talk about. I love Matthew 5 when Jesus says in verse 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a good way to get to law. Anyway, let's move on to another one because I don't want to just stay there. And there is a text I want us to get to, a couple of them. Number two, next question. Submission under every circumstance? I guess we've already answered that. But maybe turn to, 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 Acts, chapter, to Acts chapter 5, excuse me. I'd like to go to Acts 5, and I would like to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17 to kind of put this together. The answer to the question is a resounding no. We don't submit under every circumstance. After Peter is preaching the gospel and they tell him not to preach the gospel... And the governing authorities tell him not to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, let's just look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So there you go. We can find other passages, but there, there's, one is enough. When governing authorities tell you to stop doing something that you're doing that God requires, you have to say, Sorry. I have to obey God rather than man. Or when they say you must do things that God forbids, you have to say, sorry, can't do it. Might be a lawbreaker. Your law. You might put the cuffs on me or whatever it might be, but I have to obey God rather than human beings. So he takes his licks but he's not going to compromise what's right. Okay? Exactly how you flesh this out in your life, I don't know. That's why we have prayer. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. This is fascinating. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, this is fascinating because it's not like Peter and Paul are at, 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 at odds. That has been known to happen before between the two of them. Um, but they're not at odds here. P Peter would say the exact same kind of stuff that Paul would say about submitting to government. 
And yet he doesn't when he can't. And so if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Peter here, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors who, uh, governors as sent by him. How about God sent them? The context of ungodly ones to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It's not very American to love the emperor. We don't like emperors. So if you think you got it tough now, not so tough. So I like seeing Peter do that. Submit to the governing authorities. They're established by God. I want to tell you that. And then Peter doesn't follow his own sermon. Because there's a time and a place where you can't. Again, this is complicated. How this fleshes itself out, I don't know exactly. There comes a time when you oppose the government. Where we're going to go in a little while, it shouldn't be in the name of church. Where we're going to go in a little while is we preach Christ here. That's what we do. For those of you who love Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I got to go there because it's a best-selling book, a biography not too long ago. And you want to pattern, and you want to disagree with what I'm saying in my sermon after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I just want to caution you. If I could just caution you, do a little research about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and find out what kind of evangelical he was. I'm not saying he didn't do a good thing in trying to overthrow the Nazi Germany government. I'm not saying that's not commendable. But to have it be done in the name of Christ from the hands of a pastor, I would highly question. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not an evangelical. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was mentored by Karl Barth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't believe in things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't believe in the virgin birth, and on and on the list goes. I'm not saying he was a bad person. I'm not saying God didn't use him in unique ways. But don't have him be our example, because he's not even one of us. Okay? He's not even one of us. Now I've just gone down the rabbit hole. To be clear, Nazi Germany needed to be stopped. Without question. I'm thankful that my great uncle Albert was a part of that. Makes me proud as an American. 
but he didn't do so in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ. And there's a difference. You have to be careful. If you have more questions now, I think I'm accomplishing what I want to accomplish, but I do want to answer some of the questions also. I'm a little bit off track now, but I'm going to go there for a second and get my theology from a movie. (sighs) Not really. But I do appreciate the fact in that movie, The Patriot, isn't The Patriot with Mel Gibson? Gruesome. I do appreciate the fact that when it's, here we have with the American Revolution, um, that when the pastor, who wasn't, you know, some wonderful, awesome example, I'm not trying to say that, I do appreciate it when it came time to take up arms, he took off his clerical garb, he took off his pastoral robe or and set it aside and fought as an American, if you will, as a citizen, as an individual, but not in the name of Christ as a crusader. Just a good picture. I wish... Never mind. Does that make sense, though? Hopefully it'll make more sense in a moment. Next question, number three. Passivism? Question mark. Not pacifism. Pacifism. I can't even say it. I'm not saying be a pacifist. That would be similar, but not the same. Passivism. Meaning, are we called to do nothing? Is, is, Is Pastor Pat saying to me today that you preach Christ crucified, we're Christians, and we have nothing whatsoever to do with anything political or anything governing authority. Is he, is he saying that? And I want to say that I'm not saying that, actually. And here's where it gets complicated, but I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to be respectful. But I am saying that. And I'm not trying to be relativistic. When it comes to Omaha Bible Church and what we're called to do, what are we called to do? We're called to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, but what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about this? What? First and foremost, if the Bible talks about that, I can talk to you about that. But first and foremost, my message to you as an unbeliever is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let me explain that to you. Let me get that across to you. Right? That, that's what we do. Yeah, but what are your views on... If the Bible addresses it, I can help you understand that. But first and foremost, to an unbeliever, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That that doesn't mean that's all you have to say, like some kind of weird mantra. But Paul's using it as shorthand. It's gospel. Now, you have to explain why you need good news and bad news and all that kind of stuff. But really, it's, it's what we do. In Crete, with paganism all around, the emphasis again and again is, you've got to get the gospel to these people. You've got to get the gospel to these people. And, oh, governing authorities who are against you, be submissive and respectful. So, passivism? Yeah. We're not going to have a rally after church to tell you what candidate to vote for. If this were Nazi Germany, I hope we wouldn't have a meeting afterward that I led 
because I'm Dietrich Bonhoeffer to tell you what the plan is to try to execute Hitler. Now, maybe one of you would have that meeting in your basement as a citizen. I may or may not attend. I won't go on record as saying. <laughs> but I wouldn't have my <laughs> clerical garb on. This gets complicated because we're not to be passive as human beings, okay? We're called to love our neighbors. Love our neighbor. That, that, that's the second greatest commandment. That's super important. That's vital. That's crucial. And loving your neighbor would call for you to be active. What's best for your neighbor? I love my neighbor. Unbelieving, believing. And I want to do what's best for my neighbor. Yes, that's preaching the gospel. But you're actually called to do other things too. And this is complicated. I, I grant you that. But we don't make, need to make this complicated. It's not crusade in the name of Christ. Omaha Bible Church. Individuals do a lot of other things. Omaha Bible Church is going to be apolitical as much as possible. Doesn't mean we won't teach things that relate to things that are political hot buttons, but we're not trying to be political. We're trying to be biblical and preach Christ to unbelievers, equip you to think through issues. Yes, absolutely. But if you are to love your neighbor, maybe you can't, e you can't be apolitical. Something to think about. I don't think the Bible calls us to passivity, cultural withdrawal, because we're Christians. Somebody have a huddle I can huddle up in? Romans 13, 9, right after the government passage, love your neighbor. so many places I want to go to talk about this. One more thing about this, and then what we'll do is go to the fourth question, and we'll look at, a, at 1 Peter chapter 2 again. Bear with me if you would. It's super trendy in evangelicalism right now to be committed to transforming the culture. Okay. I just want to challenge that before you and with you. Is the church ever called to seek to transform the unbelieving culture? To use the hot phrase, to redeem culture. And I just want to challenge you to find redeeming culture in the New Testament. We're not called to redeem the culture. We're called to preach Christ who came to redeem sinners. And by the way, that has an effect on the culture. But the church is not called to redeem the culture. Jesus is the only redeemer, by the way. And he doesn't redeem the culture. Well, he will one day when he comes back. He, he, he redeems individual sinners. And, and faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so Omaha Bible Church is not trying to redeem the culture. We're trying to preach Christ to unbelievers, and I'm trying to say as a human being, I'm telling you as a pastor, you should be loving your neighbor. And that can look at lots of different ways. We don't want to get confused. Post-millennialism got it confused. 
and where they thought that the church is the new Israel and what we're going to do is impose God's law on the government and everything is going to get better and better. Once everybody comes under submission to God's Old Testament law, then Jesus will come back. If that's your perspective, transform culture. It's consistent with your theology. world's going to get better and better and better and then Jesus will come back. I know one post-millennialist. I think he should be about transforming culture. There are more than just one, but I know one in the city of Omaha. The other place transforming culture came from was Protestant liberalism. And I have to give you a history lesson about this. I know we're short on looking at the text today. I apologize. This is the application from last time. That's where Protestant liberalism about a century ago went. So here's what happens. All these churches who were kind of weak but had a good history, they were kind of weak churches, felt the pressure from the culture around them, and it's a growing anti-supernatural pressure. Okay, because we're really, we, we've got science all figured out, and Darwin had it all figured out, and so the Bible stuff can't be true. Things are getting better, not worse. It's progressive, and sin doesn't make sense. Redemption doesn't make sense. Uh, resurrection bodily doesn't make sense. Hell and heaven don't make sense because we can't do it in a lab in a test tube, okay? So the church doesn't want to close its doors because we like coming to church and we like singing our songs and pastor likes a salary, right? We have to, so we have to reinvent ourselves and be relevant. And so what we do is we now read the Bible as a book of virtues, morality tales, which is kind of hard to do, by the way. You're going to have to do a lot of picking and choosing. The Bible tells the truth, so there's a lot of immorality in the Bible, quite honestly. And now the Bible, first and foremost, isn't about the gospel, resurrection, new life, heaven, eternal life, salvation, imputation, justification, all these great things that will last and matter for eternity. It's about following moral examples and transforming the culture as a result. That's old-school Protestant liberalism. And guess who sounds like old-school Protestant liberals today? Us, evangelicals. It's bizarre. Back about 100 years ago, the guy who had to leave Princeton Seminary because of its liberalism, J. Gresham Machen, said this, It seems never to have occurred to the adherents of this religion... He calls it the imitation of Jesus' religion. That there is such a thing as sin, and that sin places an awful gulf between man and God. But those convictions, though they are unpopular at the present time, are certainly quite central to the Christian religion. From the beginning, Christianity was the religion of the broken heart. It is based upon the conviction that there is an awful gulf between man and God, and none but God can bridge Of what avail without the redeeming acts of God are all the lofty ideals of psalms and prophets? He's saying, you guys are just mining the Psalms and prophets for the, for the virtues. All the teaching and example of Jesus. What good is that? In themselves, they can bring us nothing but despair. We Christians are not interested merely in what God commands, but also in what God did. In the triumphant indicative. Jesus is raised from the dead. Believe in him. I'm off on the tangent there to try to help us understand 
We're called as a church to preach Christ. That's what we do. And people might say we're idiots, but that's what we do. And it's actually what they need. We're politically passive. But that doesn't mean you are. It doesn't mean you can even afford to be. Fourth question. And then we'll do number five next week. No, I promise we won't. We've already essentially covered it, but the question is, so how should we view our role in this world? And I'm going to say to you, biblically, we should view our role in this world as a dual citizenship kind of role. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? My citizens, this isn't my home. And yet he claims Roman citizenship. So you can just jot them down for the sake of time if you don't mind. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, citizenship is in heaven. Acts twenty two twenty five, he calls upon his Roman citizenship. And I think we should probably learn from that. 21st century America, citizenship is in heaven, and so we're telling people the heavenly message. And we want you to come to heaven too. We believe the gospel by God's sovereign grace, and it means we belong to heaven. Sure. And we're telling other people about it. But we're not just being passive and doing nothing. We're engaged. We're loving neighbor. And we see our citizenship is here. And again, uniquely in 21st century America, we, we, we live in a, in, a, in a democratic form of government, under a democratic form of government. And don't correct me and say it's a republic. I know that. It's a democratic form of government. Look it up on the intranet. You'll learn. <laughs> Where we have freedoms. Unlike a lot of people throughout history have had freedoms. It's awesome. It's great. Exercise your freedom. And exercise your freedom, the freedoms that you have because you're here in this place at this time as you're loving your neighbor. I don't want to say you just, you can. Maybe it's actually you should. Do what you need to do to, to show love for your neighbor. But you're also a Christian who's a citizen of heaven where it's going to last forever. And this isn't the eternal kingdom. And that is. And don't confuse the two. And you say, but this is confusing, having dual citizenship. That's right, it is. And if you ever go to another country, you're like, this feels really weird to be here. And I don't exactly know how to act. Well, it, it kind of makes sense you don't exactly know how to act. Because here we are in this place and it's not our eternal home. And yet we have responsibilities and obligations. And we can't just go, ah, who cares? No, we can't do that because we're supposed to love our neighbor. So I'm not trying to blur the, the issues. I'm trying to help you understand it's, it's not exactly easy on how we do this. If, I guarantee you, in the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, it won't be confusing. No tensions. But until then, it's weird to have dual citizenship. It's awesome. 
It's weird. One passage I do want you to see before we go, and that's 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we were already there. Gives us some insight into this. All this stuff is stuff we've covered before on different occasions. But we don't all know this stuff. We need to be reminded. We did a whole conference called Christ in Culture. You can listen to the audio. Um, Dave Andrunen was here. You can read his book, Living God's Two Kingdoms. It's essentially the same kind of stuff. But First Peter is fascinating, okay? Because sometimes... We better just start. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you continue in him, a living stone rejected by men, that would be Jesus, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about the church. We're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm dying to just preach for a long time on this, and I promise I won't. But do see what Peter's doing. He's borrowing Old Testament terminology that would be for literal stones and a literal priesthood that was to prefigure Christ's coming. That's what he's doing. He's borrowing Old Testament Israel talk. But the church is in Old Testament Israel. Israel is a holy nation where it is God government. That's one of our problems. We read our Old Testaments wrong and we think we're a holy nation. No, we're not Israel. Remember, they're a holy nation. Matthew 28, the church is made up of all nations. It's not the same. But here's what's happening. Peter is masterfully borrowing that terminology and he's using it in a non-literal way to talk about the people of God in the church and he's saying those are spiritual realities for us. That's what's happening. It's fascinating. We don't really do sacrifices. We're not really a priesthood. But spiritually, yes, through Christ. By the way, this is the better one. Verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, I really want you to see this. But you are a chosen race. He's using Israel terminology, but now he's talking about us in a non-literal way. A real way, but a non-physical way, I should say. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Yeah, in a real way, a better way, but he's not using it in a literal way. Because we're made up of all nations. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to go to one more. Read just a little bit further. But what's happening is, if anything, he's saying, don't read your Old Testaments like that. Don't think the United States of America is a physical holy nation, that we're the new Israel. He's not doing that. He's taking those things that were in anticipation and he's saying these things are true spiritually for you now. You're a holy nation. But he means it in a spiritual sense. 
And then look what he says. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, the way I memorized it, as strangers and aliens. That's how he talks about Israel in the Old Testament when they're exiled and they're away from the promised land. Life was hard when you weren't in the promised land, but you still had to live like Christians. But you were actually in Babylon, let's say. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that that would be the godless, so that when they speak uh, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. I just want you to see strangers and aliens. We're strangers and aliens. This is not our eternal home. We don't belong here in an ultimate sense. And so no wonder it's odd and it's weird. We can't take the time to go there. But if we went to Jeremiah, Jeremiah would talk about Israel praying for the peace of the pagans and praying for the flourishing of the pagans. How weird. Those people are dying not to be there. They're dying to be in Jerusalem where there isn't paganism. Using Peter's terminology, we're dying to get out of here. Okay? We're dying to get out of here to go back to, not Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that will last forever. But in the meantime, we're praying and seeking the good of Omaha, which is our Babylon. Okay? The next time you're frustrated, remember it's frustrating to be a stranger and an alien. Okay? But remember, this is not our ultimate home. But do your best by God's grace not to let this temporal home go to wreck and ruin. Because we actually are called to do something here. Okay, I repent. Too long of a sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for interaction and engagement. Please, please help us to conduct ourselves in a way that would honor Christ. It's hard. It's difficult, as you obviously know. But we do want to live for your glory and live for your honor. We want to submit ourselves to the governing authorities insofar as we can. Help us to carefully, prayerfully find the kind of balance you would want us to have as far as preaching Christ to anyone and everyone and at the same time as individuals wanting to do our part to seek the good of Babylon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.